0: Hey, Dan, uh, I need some help with something.
1: Yeah, yeah. What's up, man?
0: Uh, Hey, listen, there's this big debate on Indigenous Twitter, and I've got to warn you, it's very controversial. In fact, actually, Mm. you know what? On second thought, I'm just going to keep you out of it.
1: No, no, no. Come on, man. You can trust me. I got this.
0: All right. Okay. Okay. Here we go. What do you think of raisins? Raisins. Yeah. Yeah. Raisins. Okay. So the big debate like going on for years now is should food have raisins in them? You know, like pies, oatmeal, butter, tarts, bread. It's split right down the middle with one side uh, vociferously saying, okay, get rid of them, take them out, put them way off to the side, never to be seen from again. And the other side is fighting for their very survival, fighting tooth and nail for their little relatives' traditional homelands, battling every inch of territory for their very purpose as little shriveled fruit, just living its life before these Forces arrive to displace them and disrespect the incredible, sweet, and kind gifts they have to give. Oh, well, uh, Negan. Uh, uh, I would dare say this war is for the very purpose of raisins themselves.
1: Hey, man,
0: I don't really think this is about raisins. I call them little elders. Little shriveled elders of the fruit world. Why can't we respect the elders? I tweet that out all the time, but the war continues.
1: I think you're right. I am going to stay out of this one. The Winnipeg Free
2: Press proudly presents, in partnership with CJNU 93.7 FM, Negan and the Lone Ranger. Here are your hosts, Nigan Sinclair and Dan the Lone Ranger Let.
1: Welcome, everybody. Uh, it's another episode of Negan and the Lone Ranger, and uh, we're we're happy to be back. Uh, some of our uh, loyal listeners, and we do have loyal listeners. We do have
0: loyal listeners. I'm actually yep. very impressed, and thanks everybody for con- continuing to be loyal. So you may
1: have noticed that we have been somewhat uh, irregular. Uh, I let me rephrase that. The timing of the podcast has been somewhat irregular in the last while. Well, and also
0: while. irregular in other ways, but we'll in other ways
1: it. too. Um, but it, there's been a very good reason for that. And it's um, and for those of you uh regular readers of the Winnipeg Free Press, you may have read something about this, but uh Nagan and his father, the uh eminent uh senator judge uh and um uh cranky you know,
0: crankier guy who's well, I, I, getting yeah, older and and yeah uh,
1: i was gonna do more louding of your dad before you got to cranky but uh you know uh, lead commissioner of the uh inquiry into residential schools uh i mean one of the great men of our time i can
0: say that i know
1: you have you have trouble because you know He's cranky oh, no, I, with you. I, yeah. I,
0: I say all the great things about my dad, but good. of course, uh, I, I say cranky, of course, because he's had a lot of health issues and and uh it's been a very frustrating ride through the healthcare system, but a really good reminder to I think my my family in particular, and, and particularly particular uh, because I wrote about it, uh the that we all are experiencing this together in an atrociously bad time in our lives as the way in which healthcare has been just so flagrantly mismanaged by those who are in the decision-making abilities. And I think, you know, those in the frontline healthcare positions uh, get into healthcare because they care about people. And that's still the same. You know, Mm -hmm. I met remarkable, amazing nurses and doctors and healthcare aides and, you know, even custodians who, uh, Just uh, remarkable people who are fighting such an uphill battle, but are really are set up to lose in Mm -hmm. so many ways because of the. uh, If you read my column, you saw that you know almost waited almost twenty hours to with a father and heart failure in an emergency room, uh, just begging for a cot and then later pillows. They have no they have no pillows in the emergency Mm -hmm. room, which is you know just absolutely what a situation that we are in and you know manitoba is no different than elsewhere
1: yeah you know when uh, obviously we were talking about this before you you published your column and uh and i remember uh you know the text you were sending me from the uh emergency room at st boniface uh when your dad was uh you know sort of uh, uh in his uh, most perilous condition and we should say uh, uh, the, uh, the eminent, uh, Marie Sinclair has come through his recent, uh,
0: yeah, he's home now and yeah. he's recovering. <laughs> Unfortunately, we've got, uh, you know, when people age, you've got some decisions to make that are risky. And so those will mm-hmm. be coming up and, uh, but at the same time, you know, dad's doing well and he's recovering and he's taking care of himself. And, and, uh, you know, when you're in heart failure, uh, you, every day is kind of precious and every day you have to really take seriously the signs and uh, that's yeah. the reality of, that's the reality of it.
1: So what I, you know, as I'm reading these texts, I'm talking to my wife and like the one that like established, like the word that came to mind was frailty, the frailty right now of the healthcare system was, you know, you're in the ER and your dad's having heart problems and they ran out of heart monitors. And yeah, they, absolutely. You know, I, I've related that story to people and that's the gobsmack moment. Right. Like this idea that we have never contemplated that we could go to hospital and a basic piece of diagnostic equipment uh, would not be available to us. I mean, it was, you know, it was like I said, that was the gobsmack moment for us.
0: And yeah, the the really upsetting thing to me and uh, those who read the column saw that, but, you know, because you have to it's basically every person for themselves in an ER uh, at this stage. And I don't remember it always being this way. Um, I remember it being uh, in which you saw a pretty logical progression or an understanding of, of what was happening. But one of the most things that I didn't write about was how, Patients began advocating for other patients and my family, because we had my sister and myself with my father in the emergency room, uh, we began to advocate for others who were suffering and had no family members with them. Uh, and so you really have to fight for those things. And what we started to notice was, there was a stream of people who were coming and jumping the queue, and those were mostly individuals with police officers and paramedics and so on, um, and then some people in very genuine-looking emergencies. And uh, but you know, when you're in heart failure, it seems like that should be something that should give you priority. And uh, as you saw uh, in, if you read the column, I, I I even you know started to use my dad's. Sort of well knownness uh, in that saying, you know, he he did an inquest on cardiac uh, uh, investigations previously in Manitoba, and you shouldn't be waiting eighteen hours, or in that case, it was mm-hmm. around nine or ten. Uh, to see somebody when you're in cardiac failure, when you're in a serious situation. And what happened was, is the problems were getting exponentially worse. Mm -hmm. Uh, We went from having one problem to having five serious problems. And so uh, the most upsetting thing was I said, why is this not a priority? And they said, it's not an issue of priority. It's an issue we have no heart monitor machines, which means that you're starting to choose who will live and who will die. Mm -hmm. And putting these healthcare people, nurses, in the case of this, a nurse, Uh, All I received back was, well, you can call this complaint line. And And it, 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 for a family member, I can only imagine how heartbreaking that is. And then the other parts of the, uh, the my experience in the healthcare system was the number of verified sources in it. And I don't want to name who they are, but the number of verified sources, people who are legit, legitimate power positions within a major hospital in an urban center saying, why didn't they recognize who this person is and just steamroll them through, which I think is the exact problem in the first place. Yeah. That I I've been told about and uh, and we now are pursuing this uh, the the idea that there is a sort of unwritten rule around VIPs within the healthcare system that gets shepherded through while the public gets put in very long lines and hours of waiting time uh, and I, I think that's atrocious but at the same time you know I, I can certainly imagine that athletes politicians certain business leaders. Uh, don't wait the kind of time that we did. You
1: know, the. I think there's, there, there's going to be a lot of uh, opportunities for journalists to analyze what's happening to the healthcare system right now in a snapshot, right? Like there's some things we have to keep in consideration. So governments across the country have decided to abandon uh, all COVID restrictions and, uh, you know, decided that we'd live long enough with them. So, what we've done is we've entered the perpetual flu season. So, prior to this, all the people I know who, and I know like you, I know a lot of people very high up in the healthcare system, they would sort of say, you know, that the biggest challenge they had every year was managing this huge influx of patients during flu season. And the argument was like, you know, there's going to be longer waits, there's going to be hallway medicine. During the flu months, because we can't build a system that can operate at that capacity year-round. We don't need to build a system because, you know, eventually the flu season will pass. Well, you know, we're now in perpetual flu season. And that means that that you know, we're operating at the highest possible level of capacity all the time. And what, you know, that in and of itself is going to cause some of the, I think, some of the problems that you experience. The other part of it, though, is that and Manitoba is not alone, but you know we certainly lead the country in you know we uh, this gov- the current government decided to prioritize uh, deficit reduction and tax cuts above healthcare and, it, yeah, and it, issue, yeah
0: issue checks to Manitobans instead of dealing with it with it which what is with, is a crisis
1: yeah and, and they announced another it, round. It, yeah. It was a, it's it's always going to be a calculated risk like if you it, you know if you try to hold healthcare funding below the level uh levels of uh the rates of inflation and population growth you're you're rolling the dice or you know you're spinning the chamber on the gun there's no doubt about it and you know for this government uh, the the came up snake eyes right like covid and i think the problem is my greatest concern is i don't actually think that anybody knows how to get out of this now um because you know like we have we have governments of all stripes who just refuse to do anything to to limit our exposure to other people to possibly slow this perpetual flu season scenario and uh you know and i'm not like don't get me wrong like i don't want to i don't want to limit family gatherings i don't want to shut businesses down like i think that's it's not you know all or nothing but you know i do wonder why like do we yeah do we really have a good argument for not making people wear masks when they're indoor you know with large numbers of people like yeah like we that may be something we have to live with for a really long time but why aren't we doing it we don't have a healthcare system that can you know that that can keep up with the number of people who are are getting sick we just No one is ever going to be able to build a system that can keep up with the number of people who are sick right now.
0: We may not have an answer for getting out of the mess currently, but I can tell you what is not going to fix anything. In fact, it's going to make it way worse and has made it way worse is... The continual closure and therefore funneling of emergency cases, uh, the closure of emergency rooms, which drives people to, you know, a couple different centers throughout the city, and then the streamlining and specialization of those uh, health centers has been an absolute nightmare. And this is from the voices of healthcare providers themselves, which is now, as a example for a cardiac and a cardiac issue, if you have a cardiac issue, you can go to an ER, but. Uh, You'll only be temporarily taken care of because the goal is for you to be sent to St. Boniface. And that means that there is an incredible glut at St. Boniface on top of the uh, cuts and scrapes and bruises that people go to for the ER generally. And so what you've got is this massive amount of cardiac uh, beginning cases, people who begin to go into heart failure, for example, who have very small issues. But then they're put in the same queue with those who have the already, you know, everyday emergency situations, which are legitimate, of course. But then what happens is, is that the very basic beginnings of heart failure are not picked up the the waiting staff or the healthcare staff is incredibly overwhelmed and then exponential problems occur in patients as a result and then you get into emergency one of my friends said to me on the phone uh, get your dad to fake a heart attack and then they'll take it seriously and how sad to be to say that that is the only method that you can use to be able to uh, get attention So that people will care. And, then you know, we I also discovered uh, probably very upsettingly that all of the things that were recommended in the Brian Sinclair inquest, which is checking on people in an emergency room when they're sitting there for longer than, you know, 15, 16, 20 hours uh, is unfortunately not being implemented at st boniface is very sporadic over the span of 12 hours we were checked on five or six times and uh for many people who are sleeping in that emergency room in some cases people who are uh very clearly in dire distress uh i wonder if that's a recipe for disaster for that emergency room
1: yeah and uh a uh, quick recap brian sinclair was a homeless man who presented at hsc was this guy knows yeah, he homeless, yeah. Se, but he was he yeah. was
0: definitely in medical distress and yeah. uh, he you know waited you know 20 something hours uh, in which he eventually passed away, had been passed by for do- by dozens of people in the healthcare mm-hmm. uh, field. And uh, people just generally didn't think of him as a human being. They just walked right by him and yeah. and nobody checked on him until finally he passed away uh, as a result of an infection. and yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, a, yeah. a terrible situation. But it implemented changes in the healthcare system. and one of the most important changes is checking on people every mm-hmm. half hour to an hour. Uh, someone with a clipboard coming around checking if you're okay if you need food if you need water if you need just basic medicine like aspirin kind of thing uh, mm. we did have a few few times checked but it's very upsetting that that and i and i don't i don't blame that on healthcare people let me be clear no, there's not I, enough I, of them right now i blame right not on here. the fact that they are absolutely avalanched with Cardiac cases and then basic emergency cases because the province has decided that they are the specialized unit for cardiac cases and then on top of that they got to deal with all the other work. So now they're doing mm-hmm. two, three, four times the work they did before with less money.
1: So you know, there's, uh I mean, upcoming very soon. There's going to be a meeting of um, uh, first ministers, health ministers, and the prime minister uh, to discuss a new healthcare deal. And you know, I, I'd, I, I'm going to be an optimist. But my great hope is that uh, we that this gathering of political leaders that there's some humility in the room. There's some admission that on a provincial basis, m- most provinces are failing at the delivery of healthcare right now. If there's going to be more money, like what, there has to be a radical shift. Um, you know, at the same time, right now we're you know we're talking about uh, national standards for long term long term care. And the fact that the federal government is refusing to legislate these new standards for long-term care, long-term care, by the way, which is not a medically insured service. Somehow we forgot to include that when we created uh, the Canada health act. And, uh, and then the, you know, the ongoing uh, shortage of resources for home care that keep people out of hospitals longer. Uh, you know, I think um, like, I think unless they're bold and humble and willing to really do things differently i think we're uh you know uh here in perpetual flu season we are uh as you know screwed as screwed could be I'm sorry
0: yeah and like it is absolutely atrocious uh and somewhat shocking or uh, brain numbing to see provinces that are issuing checks to individuals when their healthcare system is just so failing and in dire situations that are uh, creating actual harm of real life people. Uh, I just can't, I, I can't fathom this idea. And you know, our colleague, uh, Tom Broadbeck wrote a very interesting column about, uh, you know, sometimes I'm always kind of, um, I'm you know, I'm always very encouraged I think because, you know, at the free press, we have this kind of set of people throughout the paper that are really engaged in thinking about where well, indigenous people in all of this. And I think that his piece was very intriguing and in saying like, why are healthcare, you know, in the, in the pandemic, perhaps there was no more efficiency or dealing with the issue of COVID-19 more directly than on first nations. And so perhaps we could learn a lot from first nations too. And there's that humility that you were talking about. Yeah. Uh, the reality is that uh, provinces need to realize that uh, they, there is no I in team and, Perhaps they might want to be thinking a lot just about their electorate. They might want to also be thinking about what it looks like when they issue checks and their healthcare system is failing. Um, And then also what does it look like in the province beside them in the so called confederation uh, to be able to deal with this thing on a national basis? Mm -hmm. And I don't think being afraid of standards or being, you know, afraid of what is often called strings attached from the federal government. Um, I mean, we should be thinking about people here and, ultimately I not saying the federal government's any better I'm just saying that the federal government by asking the provinces to deal with the issue of the emergency of health care because they're hearing about the, the emergencies too
1: so um uh, today uh we are uh well first of all we're gonna pass on best wishes to your dad um fight the good fight man and yeah I know uh, he's you know recovering <laughs> Uh, so uh, we have a very, very, very special storyteller segment today. I don't want to give away anything about the person uh, who's doing storyteller today, but uh, it's like a real coup that we got this person. Well, you know who I'm talking about, so just be quiet. Uh, and uh, <laughs> and then uh, we're also uh, blessed. We we have a, a longer interview with uh, Angela Matheson, who is the um, outgoing president and CEO of Center Venture which is the city's uh, principal downtown development corporation. She's got some, uh, some strong observations on a career, 25 years uh, working for various agencies and, uh, and government departments trying to develop downtown. Got some great thoughts about uh, the work that she's done. And uh, let's move on now to the storytellers. Hi. Hi. My name is Dan Lett, and this is The Storytellers. This is my story about a brief but very memorable meeting with Cuban President Fidel Castro. It was January 1997, and I was serving as the Free Press National Correspondent in Ottawa. I suddenly got an opportunity to follow Liberal MP and then Foreign Affairs Minister Lloyd Axworthy on a trip to Cuba. It was a historic visit for a number of reasons. Axworthy was to be the senior most Canadian politician to visit Cuba since former Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau's infamous 1976 trip. But it also came during the height of economic sanctions against Cuba by the United States. In defiance of U.S. laws threatening to punish and even jail Canadians from doing business in Cuba, Axworthy jetted off to Havana to meet directly with Castro. Working as a foreign journalist in Cuba was quite an adventure. We had to get a visa, we had to register with a press office in Havana, and then government officials insisted on providing chaperones and all transportation to and from events involving Axworthy and Castro. That turned out to be a catastrophe. On the morning of the first official day of events, we boarded white cargo vans provided by the press office. We were told we'd be joining Castro and Axworthy at an official tour of one of Cuba's natural gas fields. At the time, Canada had a huge interest in selling machinery and technology to Cuba's growing oil and gas industry. We did arrive an hour later at a gas field, as promised. The stench from the flare was overpowering. It made for great images for my television colleagues, but there were only two problems. No Axworthy and no Castro. Turns out they had gone to a different facility. The press office later claimed, rather unconvincingly, that there had been an inadvertent crossing of wires. That might have been a plausible explanation, except that it happened the very next day as well. Meanwhile, Cuban television had all the money shots of Castro and Axworthy on their evening broadcasts. Beyond angry, three journalists from the Canadian media contingent, myself, and representatives of both CTV and CBC, went unannounced to the Canadian embassy and insisted on meeting with Ambassador Mark Entwistle. The ambassador offered us his apologies for all the dirty tricks. He then made a most extraordinary offer. If we were to stake out his official residence the following day at 11 a.m., we would get to see Castro arriving for a one-on-one lunch with Axworthy. He also told us candidly that Castro absolutely loved Okanagan Valley wine and that quite a bit of it would be served during lunch. Following the meal, if we were not too pushy, the ambassador was quite confident Castro would entertain some questions. Not sure if it was all going to go down as Ann Twistle had described, we nonetheless gathered under a glorious palm tree outside of his official residence the next morning. And then, just before noon, an exquisite gleaming black vintage Mercedes limo pulled up and out popped Fidel Castro. It was like seeing a movie star up close. He was resplendent in his trademark olive-colored fatigues and cadet cap. He was tall, very tall, and athletic-looking. He looked at us briefly and then dashed inside the residence. Ninety minutes later, the ambassador's wife came out and gave us the five-minute warning to take up our positions. When Castro emerged from the residence, he did appear, for lack of a better term, well-lubricated. And then, rather than ducking back inside the limo, he paused, stared at the throng of journalists, and almost dared one of us to ask him a question. That one of us turned out to be the correspondent for the New York Times— who asked him a barrage of questions in Spanish. Castro thundered his responses, also in Spanish. He railed against the Helms-Burton Act, which punished anyone from doing business with Cuba. He referenced the Magna Carta for reasons that still escape me. And then he blamed the United States for a whole host of social and economic woes. Castro signaled the end of the interview with a sudden and somewhat angry wave of his hand. The whole time I had been standing directly across from him on the driver's side of the limo, and before he ducked back inside, he looked directly at me, smiled ever so slightly, and nodded. He sounded quite like a drunken madman, but his nod convinced me this was something else entirely. He wasn't the rambling drunken fool. He was merely reprising a role that he had honed for many, many years the role that he used to taunt the United States and keep the Americans on their toes. Or at least, that's what I thought at the time. This week's episode, we're uh, very happy to have Angela Matheson, who is the uh, president and CEO of Center Venture Corporation, which is the um, the downtown, the principal downtown development agency for the city of Winnipeg. Uh, it's been around for more than two decades. Angela has been with them uh with center venture for about a third of its lifespan last eight years and she's just stepping down and it's a a good time to kind of reflect i think on uh the state of downtown it's been a major concern for the winnipeg free press we just published a big uh fat hairy series on the state of downtown and the future of downtown so you know anytime in journalism anytime you uh you get to speak to somebody when they're on their way out of a job uh that's like that's a time that you know to eat well on uh inside information so we're gonna get uh angela is gonna give us all the the inside scoops on what's happened uh over the the next decade she's looking at me on zoom right now thinking oh my god what did i get myself into is that... <laughs> got it
2: this is my yeah. exit interview i guess
1: <laughs> yeah the, your your exit interview and uh i mean i can't say for sure but there could be up to two thousand uh winnipeggers who are listening to you review your own performance uh over the last eight years um but I should say as well how do you feel about leaving Center Venture because it, it is a bit of an all-consuming job is it not
2: oh it is for sure I mean yeah I mean many nights thinking of new ideas when I probably should be getting a better rest um yeah I mean I'm you know it's I've been with the organization for eight years so you know, I think that's, uh, you know, enough time to achieve a, a pretty, pretty good roster of accomplishments, but you know, to go forward, you got to have the energy to, 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 look ahead and be the one to implement what's going to happen next. And, and maybe I don't have that. <laughs> so it's time to try Although, something new. although as, yeah. as we
1: discussed it, you're, you're not completely leaving the world of urban planning and development. Like this is, you, no, you no, want to continue to pursue yeah. this as a, sort of, as a life passion now.
2: It, it has been my life passion for 25 years yeah and most especially the downtown i mean i've had the great um you know uh, honor of being involved in this genre of work now for yeah 25 years so um so i think i've learned a bit about what what's what's worked what's not worked and you know to the best of my ability i'm going to keep Uh, giving people my advice (laughs) I probably will whether they like it or not
1: (laughs) yeah no I think you'd mentioned to me that you had a rather securitous route into the world of like urban planning and development like that it it wasn't you didn't uh, as a 11 or 12 year old girl in school you didn't dream of a day when you could broker multi-million dollar deals for you know retrofitted uh, department stores uh uh what like when you headed off into into professional uh, pursuing professional things, what did you first pursue?
2: Well, I was when I was a kid, I was always involved in the arts um, and I, I did think that um, that, that that was going to be the route that I take that I took. Um, I was very involved as a kid in the in the visual arts and I, I don't remember at one point in time I ended up getting involved in theater and um, as a kid, I, I, I would take the bus downtown. Um, I get off at Main Street right across from City Hall and walk up to uh, what today is the Red River College Princess Street campus was uh, Prairie Theatre Exchange. Great. Right. And uh, climbed up these old rickety stairs, uh, this old building that was probably pretty close to falling down at the time, <laughs> um, and took theatre uh, drama classes there for, for many, many years. It did two things. It certainly solidified my love of the downtown as a young person and how unique and and different it was than sort of the street i grew up on um but yeah it got me interested in in creative pursuits for sure so that sort of morphed and i thought i was going to go into stage design at one time and i had friends who said well if you're going to do that you should go into interior design at the u of m because there wasn't really a uh, like a class or a program Mm -hmm. for for set design, I did that. Did that for a while, and then I started meeting all these architects and city planners, and and then all of a sudden, and actually, we ended up doing a studio, uh, an interdisciplinary studio of all of those folks downtown again, on Albert Street in the building mm. that I think had Mondragon at one point in time. I That's right, Mondragon. <laughs> and we were we were studying how to revitalize um, the Exchange District. And it seemed to me that the city planners were sort of leading the way in this studio and i thought well maybe that's what i want to do Mm -hmm. and that's what i ended up doing Um, and then i ended up uh, graduating i worked um, with a consulting firm of a really really uh, wonderful man jim august Um, rest his soul um, him and I had—I uh, was his helper, I guess, for many years in his consulting firm, and then uh, got working in government, and then that sort of started morphing into more economic development, but still always with a a city planning city planning bent. And I kept going, and I don't know—I never—I didn't do a lot of job interviews. It just sort of sort of was one thing after another, and that's what I tell young people too: is keep you know, you get an opportunity, take it. Yeah. Um, then I was uh, Assistant Deputy Minister for Urban Affairs for many years. And then I became a Secretary to Cabinet to Gary Dewar for Community and Economic Development. Yeah. And there I did everything from hog plants to hydro dams. But I loved, still love the downtown and spent way too much time on that probably. And then, then really was in my job description and knew that I had to keep, keep working in that area. So when I yeah. left Government and the Opportunity Centre Venture came up, I grabbed it
1: so yeah. it, you mentioned Jim August and and that that's really like kind of opened a bit of a floodgate of memories for me um me many people like many people listening are going to know who Jim August is because they're just an iconic figure in the development redevelopment of downtown um when I first came to Winnipeg and I'm not going to say the year you know because I now work with people at the free press who weren't born yet when I started at the free press I know so, how old you are Dan. <laughs> well okay so that that we're everybody like there's certain things neither one of us are going to talk about today then but when i first started in the late 80s um one of the first people i sort of connected with was jim august quarry initiative which was you know maybe the first iteration of a like a three-level tripartite funding to do things um at the uh in the downtown winnipeg and uh and then um uh, the forks renewal corporation he was heavily involved in that and really you know jim was the guy who helped me kind of understand what the hell uh winnipeg was all about yeah and uh you know like because i you know i i'm you know transplanted torontonian i'd been working in alberta you know came here and it was kind of like oh my god like uh like there's so much cool stuff going on downtown and yet there's such a what's the right word? Such a self-loathing about downtown <laughs> as well. Is I don't think that's an, an understatement. Jim helped me understand. People don't really hate downtown. They hate themselves for hating downtown. This is going to turn into a John Sampson, John K. Sampson reference soon, <laughs> right? Yeah, he doesn't really he hate Winnipeg. So on, yeah. That's yeah, right. He doesn't yeah. really hate Winnipeg. But um, yeah, like it's, I mean, for like following in the step, footsteps of of uh guys like Jim August. Uh what did you learn from him that you were able to apply later on in the work you were doing?
2: You know, I, I learned something pretty basic from him, which is which is to have a can-do attitude. And I was lucky to work very, you know, after with folks like Eugene Castilla and Gary Dewar and folks these were folks who had a can-do attitude. And I always say, and I had over the years, I've had staff who, you know, sometimes get down on themselves and I say, please just whatever you do is start the day with the word yes. You, yeah. might, work, you might work your way to the end of the day to know, and that's okay, because sometimes you can't do things, but yeah. always start from the word yes. And it's a philosophy that I've carried forward is whenever somebody has an idea and comes into our office here, my first my first inclination or my first thought is always, how can I help this person achieve that? Um, and I think, you know, when you, and it's sort of a bit of a privilege to actually be in that position, I realize that. Um, and folks like Jim had that, right? Like working with the Corary Initiative. I mean, we had never seen um, that, and I don't think Canada actually, if you really mm-hmm. look across the country, never seen that kind of um, collaboration between the three levels of government towards one goal, which was to see uh, not only the downtown, but the whole core area, inner city of the city of Winnipeg, um, you know, reach its full potential and to become really a healthy place to to live, work and play. And, you know, so he worked in that and he saw that. And so he never stopped having that attitude like we can do stuff. We can have good things. (laughs) And, um, and I learned that from him and, um, and I think that that's helped because where there, um, people may perceive barriers. I always think, oh no, there's a way to deke around that. There's a way yeah. of getting to find other partners to help you do it. Right yeah. I,
1: I, I'm not, I, I didn't, I wasn't using the wrong word when I talked about how Winnipegers love to hate downtown and then kind of hate themselves for hating downtown like this, it's this you know, kind of vicious cycle of talking down the downtown um, and then, you know, wishing better things for it, but, you know, not really being sure what to do. I mean, is there is there something about the the Winnipeg culture, the Winnipeg mindset that that kind of puts us in this gerbil wheel of, you know, self-loathing and uh, indecision about what to do about downtown?
2: I mean, I think. You know, i think we always say this is, is winnipeg's always like a few steps behind everybody else and i don't know exactly why that is you know people talk us about us being out in these bare oh sorry hang on just a sec angela i so far away yeah. I think you'd say that and, more-
1: sorry just hang on a sec well we're going to go back because you're uh you're you're pixelated your I'm audio is pixelating on me um i might uh if it happens again i might get you to turn off your camera but so I'll just go back uh to the question um so like again my, you know my view is sort of is still a bit of an outsider you know the impressions that were made when I first got here this idea that you know uh so many Winnipegers hate downtown and then when you press them a little bit on it they kind of hate the fact that they hate downtown it's kind of this this weird gerbil wheel of self-loathing um where they they don't like downtown they don't want to go downtown they want downtown to be better they do they they support the aspirations but they really you know in the end i'm not sure they do enough to support downtown is it what is it about the winnipeg culture mindset or whatever that that kind of contributes to this
2: i mean i think to, to some extent it's 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 maybe some of our leadership being a little bit behind where Where the populace is in terms of their desires and their wants right like you know very recently we pulled people and 70 percent of winnipeggers were worried about the downtown and about the same amount of people wanted governments to do something about it i actually think that's a much higher number Mm -hmm. than say you would have had even you know say 15 years ago so people's consciousness you know why because they're traveling places they're seeing they're even traveling in canada and seeing cities doing active transportation, doing public art, doing, you know, these amazing and unique places where you can take your family in the central cities. And so I think, you know, I think they, they are, they're yearning for it. I think they're frustrated that it isn't being priorized. Um, And so they want it, but they, they don't know how to get it. And that's, you know that's uh, natural. I mean, it really should be our mm-hmm. leadership and our senior management of our various organizations. You know, figuring yeah. that out. But it's not There's, happening fast enough. I think that's no, what it is. I think they're yeah. seeing in other places it's not happening fast enough, and they're getting frustrated. Yeah.
0: yeah
1: I, I remember one of the one of the best conversations I ever had with Jim August. This is turning into the Jim August tribute podcast. I'm, I'm
2: totally okay with that. You, no, so am I. Yeah. Um,
1: but you know, I Seriously. remember I remember saying to him like. You know, like Winnipeg started the beginning of the 20th century, Chicago of the North had the tallest building in Western Canada. And then, and then also, you know, like when I arrived uh, in Winnipeg, you know, like the skyline was really underwhelming. And I remember asking him, like, you know, isn't there an ambition or in the capital to build taller buildings in Winnipeg? Like, doesn't, because usually that that is kind of a statement uh of uh of a city's ambition when they build tall buildings and uh, I remember very distinctly Jim saying to me like as I said you know what is it like could it be the geology the water table you know what is it and he said no 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 he said you know a lot of people in Winnipeg or Winnipeg they just don't want to be that high off the ground you know like they they like the idea of a good view but they don't want to be too high um you know uh and it's it it, it's funny because that that is a comment that really kind of describes the very modest approach like the the very uh, restrained approach that we've used to developing downtown now we don't have the private capital that that some other cities have but even so you know like there are this is not a city like the people who run the province in the city regardless of political stripe have not they have not wanted to move too fast or too high or too big is that a fair comment
2: oh i think so and i think like my best advice right now to to folks um in those those positions of power is i think probably now we have to lean in a lot more and be a lot bolder about how we're approaching um building up our central cities for sure And I think it's, it's, it's two parts. It's, 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 investing in the downtown for sure. But I, I'm, you know, I'm a city planner, so, you know, I'm growing to understand the sort of macroeconomics of it all a lot better. And, um, you know, I sort of, I, I sort of uh, equate it to sort of, you know, trying to, to walk up an escalator going down. (laughs) If if stop at any point, you're going to get back to the bottom. (laughs) You know, if you run out of breath, you're going to get back to the bottom. So we really need, need something that's sustained. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you, the only way to sustain it is to look really closely at how the rest of the city is building. We're building it out. Mm-hmm. And yeah, like you said, we got to look at ways to start building it up. Yeah. Um, otherwise, we're going to break the bank and we're, we're, we're going to lose this. this
1: so uh, let's do this in two parts. We'll, yeah. we'll talk about the progress that you and I have seen over the last 25 or 30 years in downtown. We'll talk about the good stuff. And then let's put it into the context of where we could have done more, we could have moved faster, you know, those those areas where we need more, as you say, lean in more. So uh, I think I related a story to you that the day I got hired by the Winnipeg Free Press, I went to a phone booth and, uh, you know, uh, for those listeners who don't know what a phone booth is, they used to be, they used to put phones on <laughs> out in boxes on the street and you could put coins in it and yeah. So anyways, I called my mom to tell her that in Toronto that I'd been hired at the Winnipeg Free Press and I could barely hear her on the phone because of all the construction going on for Portage Place. So, you know, in my lifetime, it you know, I've seen Portage Place, Red River, you know, college campus, you know, all the development from the Pan Am Games, Forks, Arena, you know, all these things. So, like, when you look back over that, how would you describe the – the like uh, the progress like you you would say there has been progress how would you distinguish it
2: I think what we learned from projects like North Portage like Portage Place was uh, although we still struggle to really kind of hard you know grasp this is that if you build it they won't come yeah that that is that is what we've learned we still think that maybe they will if we keep building these projects that they will come and so um and we still have these debates about where to put things too like i remember with the red river college you, you talk about red river college on Princess street that was one of my first files when i worked in government and i was i was I was was terrified because it became such a big public issue about where the Red River College campus was going to go. It was going to go either either where where I used to take theater lessons uh, near the city hall, or it was going to go across on Spence Street from the University of Winnipeg. Big public debate about whether where this should go and so on. And there was this: well, it'll have more impact if it goes here. It'll have more impact if it goes there. And And then we had the same thing with the arena. Should Mm -hmm. it go where the Eaton's building is? Should it go across from the convention center? We have like, where's it gonna have this biggest impact, right? Like where, if we build it here, will more of them come here or there? And I think we've learned that that those kinds of minor tweaks don't really make a difference. They should be downtown, Um, Mm -hmm. that's key. And that you have to build, you have to wrap around it a little bit more and you have to do more um, to really capitalize on those investments. So like I know when the arena was built, we set up this uh, Portage Avenue Stakeholders Association, yeah. which which ended up becoming this whole shed district. It was really a marketing idea, right? Like, this, how do we market this whole thing? And then we said, okay, well, how do we put in place, get some of these properties in and around the arena and the convention center that were derelict? Uh, I think of the uh, Metropolitan Theater, for example. Right. right? um we were going to have this convention center next to a whole theater this is this you know but it wasn't going to just organically happen it wasn't a game of sim city right
0: right
2: had to we had to go in and make some interventions and do things and the city put in place some better tax systems to support things because they understood that some of the economics were were tilted away from these types of developments so it really required this kind of wraparound idea Mm-hmm. And um, and that's what we learned like and so Portage Place when it was developed, of course you know it had a big uh, flurry of activity and everybody was really excited, but it wasn't too long between before the south side of Portage Avenue
1: right <laughs>
2: started started to get uh, you know started to lose some of its retail uh, occupancy and of course finally sort of the nail in the coffin was the closure of the Eaton's building. Mm in 1998 because the whole mall had been built upon this suburban idea you got in which we see in the malls today i mean maybe they're different retailers today but you know you had the Etons at one end and you had the bay at the other and we built this brand brand new facility connecting them and one of those anchors closed yeah and so we realized this isn't enough and i think even when those projects were being done we knew that housing most successful downtowns needed housing, more people living there to get that 24 hour uh, eyes on the street, the Jane Jacobs effect. Right. Right. And so um, um, and in 1999, when Glenn Murray set up Centre Venture, I think there was a, a, a clear understanding that the organization was to focus on getting more housing to downtown and heritage buildings, because we had so many wonderful heritage buildings. So those were sort of the two primary mandates. And the um, organization we provided lending to uh, projects. We, yeah, like I said, we assembled lands and those kinds of things. And so we got it, we started to get it right that it wasn't like just build a big building yeah. <laughs> and yeah. think that, and to think that there's gonna be this massive spin off effect. It takes a little bit more tender, loving care and addressing some of the more fundamental economic reasons that
1: yeah.
2: um, people are investing in the downtown
1: so we we could fairly categorize uh, the the progress that's been made in downtown as positive but maybe you know lacking in a little impact and and momentum so we have done like all of the uh, yeah sustaining yeah. yeah everything that you've mentioned it's all a net positive like it, there that isn't sure. yeah. Um, yeah um but uh you know, the the missing piece of the puzzle and, you know, which I would agree to is, is the residential. Uh, you, you recently wrote a piece for the Winnipeg Free Press. God love you for writing for the Winnipeg Free Press. Really appreciate that. And, um, you know, at the time we didn't, this was just last October, we didn't know that you were getting ready to move on. But you know, like when I read this piece now, like there, there is, there is a lot of heartfelt, like you 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 very passionately defend the downtown and at the same time I get the sense of of the uh, you know maybe a little profound disappointment uh about what we haven't accomplished in particular so you mentioned the importance of residential of not relying on you know there are no uh uh catalyst single one-off uh developments and uh, and you notice like you know residential we've made progress 45 new homes uh 45 new uh, uh housing units uh downtown but over the period of, yeah 4500 over yeah. A, a period of uh 200 uh, or two decades so we're talking okay. about yeah 225 250 units a year and, and that number really kind of that was a shot to the solar plexus for me like I I would have thought it was more uh on an, you know more than 4,500 more than 225 um you know units uh, a year and that's just really not uh i mean these are my words not yours but i don't think that that's taking the the challenge and and recognizing the importance of residential uh to the down it's just not it's just not there we're not we're not we're not uh getting behind the thing that we know that is going to make the biggest impact
2: oh for sure i mean um i'm 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 ever optimistic but i you know, but I'm also someone who uh, doesn't shy away from speaking truth to power, that's for sure. And, you know, the last, uh, really the last program we had to, and there's reasons why right now as governments need to provide some degree of tax incentive to encourage residential development. I hate that it's the case, but there's, there is some systemic inequities in the cost of construction downtown compared to elsewhere that yep. will take much bigger shifts to change. And so governments have been saying, if you build a building in the downtown and you're going to raise the taxes on that site, we're going to give them back to you for a couple of years to offset capital costs.
1: Ta- tax increment financing. Tax yeah. increment
2: financing. Yeah, people to TIF, but, yeah. but really is saying you do this. We're just going to give it back to you a little, for a little while to help, to, to, to help you do that. So the last program we had was in 2014. Mm-hmm. Last program. Okay. Mm-hmm. People see lots of buildings going up and get very excited. And some politicians have even cut the ribbons on those those buildings. Um, but, but those buildings were actually, you know, seeded and started more than eight years ago. so when i talk about that escalator (laughs) if you pause for a second you're going to go back to the bottom and so we have to figure out a way to to sustain that and it means getting at some of these these more uh fundamental reasons why there is a differential cost in construction downtown um but in the meantime we should be we should be sustaining these these programs and 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 that didn't happen in the last yeah. uh, city council administration. No. Correctly. And only until the pandemic when we finally convinced them because we said not only are we, were we seeing a dramatic reduction in residential construction, you're going to start to see class C office buildings um, start to to shutter potentially as mm-hmm. a result of the pandemic. And then we got yeah. them to with some some degree of support, but now now we're now we're climbing back up that escalator and it's Yeah. Like, you know,
1: yeah so is is are we talking about uh something as simple as political will i oh, mean yes. it, it, yeah like it it cuz it certainly seemed that there was a convergence of um uh municipal and provincial government like the flavor of provincial and municipal government neither level of government really really wanted to prioritize this and so they didn't uh no. they you know they they talked the talk on downtown but but didn't really uh and it, you know i mean so it, is that an unfair description
2: no it's a hundred percent accurate no it, it is so why why, why
1: why did downtown as a policy priority why did it lose its, its its luster
2: oh i don't know i actually don't know if i know the answer to that i mean it it requires i mean it's it's it requires people to really dig in and understand the reasons why, like what your, your types of questions that you're asking, you know, why, why, why did we see some success before? Why are we not mm-hmm. seeing it now? What's missing? And that requires a certain level of work and sort of, I guess, um, you know, intellectual energy into it and other priorities, right? I think other priorities come up and there's only so many things that you can handle um, at one time. I'm feeling more optimistic about the political will, to be honest with you, in, in the downtown. I think I think in many ways the pandemic shone a light on the downtown and mm-hmm. unfortunately a negative way, uh, but it also then I think causes people to have a little bit more resolve about it mm-hmm. and to um, say, okay, ooh, maybe we should be trying to do something about this now, you know, so. But again, I, I think it's gonna be really hard to make massive strides unless unless that kind of commitment is sustained um but you know what i think it is i i think that um and i think this will change because uh, you know the po- the politics of downtown and how important is downtown to the average voter right mm-hmm. i would say 15 years ago and i know for a fact it was pretty mm-hmm. low <laughs> yeah uh, very low and that's changing and it's changing mostly by young people
1: mm-hmm.
2: right young people are wanting you know more walkable types of cities I was interviewed by another media outlet, uh, last week about new projects, like around the pull park, right. Mm-hmm. The park. Um, and then building this housing and you, you renderings that look like, you know, look like they could be the forks or they, they
0: could be, you know, yeah. around
2: the arena and turn or square. And I, and people said, well, do you have a problem with this? Are you concerned about this new housing going out to pull park? And I'm like, no, it's great.
0: Mm-hmm. It's
2: proving to me, um, that, folks in the development industry believe that there is a market for a complete community a community where mm-hmm. you don't have to get in your car every single time you want something yeah where you have entertainment that you can walk to in the evening um where you can go and get your groceries without it being a big production or get one or two things at a time just just to make that your evening outing right
0: yeah. that's what
2: we have downtown um and i think you know i think that if if the market is growing that's great we just have to make sure we're getting some of that market share yeah
1: yeah it, it you know it's the um it's the age-old problem and it's it's not just a problem in winnipeg but um i mean personally the 70 percent of people would like to see something happen downtown mm-hmm. i think yeah. that the mitigating factor maybe in that result is the fact that what people want to have down like what people who don't live and work downtown they want improvements in downtown but they don't necessarily want the things that the people who live and work downtown want and we saw that during the portage in maine um uh plebiscite uh you know the people who live who really live and work downtown they really wanted the intersection open i mean they didn't just want the intersection open, but they also wanted a, you know reimagining of the transit routes you know to take some of the traffic away from the intersection they wanted you know some streets in the uh in the exchange district made into pedestrian malls I mean it it was really connected to a a a broad myriad of issues and yet you know it was the donut phenomena you know like where the suburbs uh you know rose up and like squashed the idea uh and so and that makes me that makes me kind of worried that you know uh like for example anything that has to do with preferential tax protocols or regimes like anything that's an incentive to get people to build, but also people to buy and live downtown is that the the way, the way provincial and municipal government is structured, um, you know, there are very few elected officials that represent that downtown area and they don't have the political muscle to convince the people who represent other areas of the city to get it done. It, so like, you know, is that 70% genuine like let's do things for downtown that we maybe aren't doing in other parts of the city
2: oh there's a lot to unpack in that question I mean the um it was
1: an awful question I'm I'm just acknowledging <laughs> no, right now it was brutal there was good thoughts in it but it was brutally posed. No, these yeah. these
2: are the questions I mean I I could go many, many ways on this one. I, always, I know what you're talking about. And, and there is a sort of a bit of a parochial, I see it on city council quite a lot, a bit of a parochial attitude when it comes to investments in the downtown. Oh, well, it's like investment in the downtown against my community center, or we mm-hmm. even arguing for more compact development to somehow going to offend people who live in the suburbs. And I say, you know what? I, I try to say to suburban councillors, I say, you know what? That Your, your constituents don't want you to keep expanding the city, <laughs> and 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 creating more traffic on the roads that they travel on, you know more more uh you know more uh, uh, wear and tear on the things that um you know that the, they enjoy like their libraries and schools and so on and so forth. They don't actually want that. So there's a really actually pretty strong political argument for continuing to build up in this center of mm-hmm. the city. And all suburban councillors i think should 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 get on board with that right um number one um i can't even get the next <laughs> clause yeah. in your question no
1: no no we'll no, just like I the I was
2: rambling and now i'm rambling but i no, to yeah get that.
1: i know like yeah. you have you have no idea like the, the people i work with are they're, they're all smiling and nodding right now you know and at the <laughs> rambling question no I, I think it's the idea of like when i think of the lack of political will over the last eight or nine years and you know compared to you know that idea this idea that we really need to lean into this like if we're going to really transform downtown use the tools and apply them to the you know the type of projects residential that we know are going to make the biggest impact and that you know the problem that I have is that I just I don't believe that uh the Brian Mays and the Janice Lukes of the world are going to allow that to happen you know I I don't know what's going to happen in the provincial election um you know if if what happens is what we think is going to happen there may be an entirely new focus on downtown that the, the current provincial government just simply does not have but even then you know uh the real politic of uh of the way the city is structured I think comes into play so in your optimism do you see champions that are willing to run the gauntlet of this you know this um Uh, you know, this, uh, that that self-loathing again, like, oh, I really wish downtown was better, but I don't want them to do anything downtown that they won't do for me out in the suburbs kind of thing.
2: Yeah, no, I am optimistic. I am optimistic for the reasons I said before is, is I think we have a growing cohort demographic that does care about this. And they're not the 50 year olds. They're not the 60 year olds. They are the younger folks who, who want their city to be like the other cities that they spend a lot of money to travel to every, every year. And so that group is going to keep, you know, going through um, sort of this demographic swath and they're going to, they're, they're going to have a bigger impact for sure. Um, But I do have optimism. I I do have optimism. Uh, I think that the current, the mayor who's recently elected, Mayor Gillingham, I think, I do really think he is getting it. I think he's trying to talk to lots and lots of folks and to get a good, um, to get a good idea about what to do going forward. Um, You mentioned Janice Lukes. I know she's a suburban councillor, but I also know she's a big supporter of the downtown. Um, so I think there are some champions there. I, I mm-hmm. do think so. I think we need a strong leadership to gel that into, you know, a series of actions. The city's just about to launch um, this year, I think, by the end of the year, a new downtown plan, which we're having a, right. a big uh, input into that. I'm hoping will be a little, a little less like the old plans that just go on a shelf, but, uh, but a plan that has some concrete actions and some resources around it, because that's really the best we can do. Mm -hmm. We have to get enough people around the table who want to see good things happen. And you just keep, you just keep pushing on.
1: Well, uh, you know, I, I, I love the Winnipeg downtown. Um, Some of my family works downtown here. We go downtown all the time willingly. And, um, you know, we really want to see more done there. So I, like, I, I share your optimism tinged with maybe a, a bit more, you know, cynicism than, uh, than you're expressing but we need real optimists uh to kind of drive this forward so i i just want to thank you for kind of you know joining us today and, and uh, having this conversation because uh it's important like it, it is in the end solving downtown is is fixing winnipeg too it's not just downtown so for
2: sure it means something it, it matters to everybody
0: and we're back and uh you know there's been lots of changes in Manitoba over the past week or so while we've been you know thinking about healthcare and talking about downtown and the library and uh there's was a cabinet shuffle and you know cabinet shuffles sometimes they create uh, a big splash sometimes they don't Uh, This one is very much about the new upcoming provincial election that's coming in October for Manitoba. Uh, We have four new cabinet ministers, uh, some absolute newcomers who have just never, literally just been in government for a few minutes and then are immediately into cabinet posts. Um, You know, Janice Morley-LeCompte is the new minister of mental health and community wellness. Uh, James Tietzma, uh, well-known uh, advocate, uh, conservative uh, MLA, new Minister of Consumer Protection and Government Services, and then two newcomers: uh, Abi Khan, former Winnipeg Blue Bomber, uh, who's been much heralded in uh, Fort White, uh, is the new minister responsible for sport, culture, and heritage, perhaps unsurprising. But then perhaps the most surprising post: uh, Kevin Klein in, from Kirkfield Park, who literally was just voted in a couple of weeks ago is the new minister of environment and climate and minister responsible for efficiency manitoba uh there's some surprising appointments here
1: yeah i mean i think um for a little context uh so the premier is drawing from a smaller gene pool for this cabinet shuffle so t- uh 10 mlas uh had uh announced re-election well actually 11 um MLAs had announced that they were not going to stand for re-election and that uh, you know that takes out a third basically of their caucus so and you know a lot of the uh a lot of the people uh retiring from politics we assume are uh you know they're experienced people they've got tons of uh, uh you know of experienced people that the premier could rely upon to because you know, like a cabinet minister's first role is to not do anything stupid and embarrass the premier. So uh, you know, these people were all mostly safe from themselves, not entirely. Um, the 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 real wild card came when uh finance minister Cam Friesen, who had previously told the premier he was gonna run for election, suddenly, um, you know, and this is just a few days before the cabinet shuffle. Announced that uh, yeah he's not going to run for re-election he is going to try and get the uh, the federal nomination in Portage Lisgar. and uh, I think the um, um, th- th- there's a lot of backstory to the freezing thing which we can discuss in a moment it forced uh, uh, Stephenson Premier Stephenson to do a couple of things one is she had to call upon two MLAs who are not running for re-election and had to keep them in cabinet and key posts. One was Cliff Cullen, Deputy Premier, and he also becomes the Finance Minister. And Eileen Clark, who uh, steps back in, is Indigenous uh, Reconciliation and uh, Northern Affairs. And uh, Eileen Clark is an interesting story because not only is she actually probably the number... You know, you'll know you tell me if
0: I'm wrong, well, she, of course. I, number I one source, yeah. When she left the Post, of course highly controversial reasons she left, but uh, very few conservative MLAs have I heard in the history of Manitoba politics are as beloved as Eileen Clark. I I mean, you know, there's much to say about the Pallister government, later the Stephenson government, when it comes to Indigenous relations, uh, whether they're failing, succeeding, whatever. Uh, But I will tell you that Eileen Clark is Pretty universally loved, uh, is on speed dial with most of the chiefs of the major organizations and David Chartrand, you know, uh, like literally very close relationships. And uh, people were very disappointed when she left for quite controversial reasons. Of course, uh, she left because of the comments that Brian Pallister made involving colonization, uh, which were just ahistorical and incorrect. And I came out and like you wrote about this as well, um, you know, and she led. Uh, I wouldn't say she led the revolt, but she certainly was the tipping point, I think, in the conservative caucus, which led to Brian Pallister's resignation.
1: Yeah. Um, basically, um, I mean, there were two bombs dropped. Uh, one was, uh, you know, settlers uh, didn't intend on committing genocide, comment by Brian Pallister. I, there, the, uh, you know, and, and I just broke promise to myself that I would never talk about that woeful moment ever again, but it's, it's important context now. And then Alan Al- Lajmodier uh, and his uh, his attempts to rationalize uh, the, the toxic uh, effect and impact of residential schools. And Eileen uh, um, Clark, who had built enormous credibility with Indigenous people, literally just said enough is enough. And she resigned and told the premier she couldn't represent uh, a government that would say such horrible things. Uh, indigenous leadership, and this is the first time I've ever seen this happen, came out and actually criticized the premier, uh, not just for what he said, but but for losing uh, um, Eileen Clark, and uh, so those uh, you know incidents did create the it absolutely, and I wrote about it at the time created the critical mass within the uh, progressive conservative uh, party and government to oust Brian Pallister, so he was given a an ultimatum. Uh, you know, two years ago, leading up to a big uh, caucus meeting in Brandon, if you don't resign now, we are going to publish an open letter signed by several hundred—that might be an exaggeration—but opinion leaders within the party asking for you to resign. So, if you if you want that to be your legacy, uh, then hang around. And so, yeah, I think I think you can say Eileen Clark, uh, really got rid of Brian Pallister.
0: You know, cabinet shuffle is all about trying to put a fresh coat of paint on uh, a government that maybe is looking older or looking cracked or looking, you know, a cabinet shuffle is almost always about uh, either crisis or it's about renewal in some way. And uh, certainly there's a lot of criticism coming from the NDP saying, uh, pointing these brand new people who just won by-elections weeks ago, months ago, whatever, uh, getting major roles within the government is an indication of uh, what the NDP is calling chaos. I mean, that'll be show that'll show whether it is. I mean, certainly ministers that are in for only a few months certainly can't do any changes or or major. I mean, this is really a cabinet that's uh, going into an election, uh, hopefully a cabinet that won't step in any messes uh, between now and October. Uh, but particularly, the big question to ask is, can the Conservatives gain back Winnipeg? Mm-hmm. Uh, they are polling, you know below 20 percent. Uh, can you make an inroads in winnipeg kevin klein who's now been uh, you know we mentioned before only in in the legislature for a couple of weeks now suddenly as the minister i mean he was in a very close by election fight which really shouldn't have been close uh, was a traditionally held very strong conservative stronghold and you know only won by a few hundred votes and and here we are looking at uh, the conservatives trying to make inroads back in winnipeg trying to gain some kind of support i don't know can they do it you think
1: um, well, I, I mean, you know, I mean, like you, I get asked all the time, like, you know,
0: the NDP going to win the election or the
1: Tories going to hang on. I mean, I think all options are on the table right now. Um, the, uh, the Tories, the big card, the Tories have to play is that they have a budget mm-hmm. and, uh, the budget will be an opportunity for them to start a new narrative thread for their government. Now, What's interesting is, and this relates directly to the cabinet shuffle. This was the subject of my column on the cabinet shuffle. If if you want to take a glass half full view of what Heather Stephenson did, she seized upon the opportunity to replace uh, Cam Friesen with his by after he made his announcement, and it it became very clear leading up to uh, the uh, uh, the cabinet shuffle that. There was an enormous rift between uh, the Premier and her finance minister. That's an important relationship in government. The finance minister traditionally is the cabinet minister who's supposed to be able to say no to the Premier. There's supposed to be some pushback. In this particular instance, though, Cam Friesen, according to my sources, had become an obstacle to what the Premier wanted to do. So she wanted to maybe do some different things, and Cam Friesen uh, basically said, no, he controls the purse strings, he controls Treasury Board, Treasury Board has to approve any new expenditures. It is telling that the week before the cabinet shuffle, um, uh, the Premier played a very big card within the announcement of a special warrant, new spending, $850 million on a whole range of things, infrastructure, infrastructure. Um, It includes this most recent $200 million carbon tax buffering check bullshit. Sorry, did I say that, Adam? Don't edit that out, okay? (laughs) But really, like, the worst form, the worst possible form uh, of a use of tax dollars at this uh, time. Uh, But what's important is she did that announcement, $850 million. Uh, Cam Friesen was not in attendance for that announcement. And the reason is, you know, she knew she was getting rid of him at that point. And, uh, you know, honestly, she, I'm not sure what she's going to do with this newfound freedom she has. Uh, But, you know, Cam Friesen most definitely was delaying the implementation of the $200 million healthcare resource plan, incentives and uh, recruitment things to get more doctors and nurses in Manitoba. They've made no progress to date. And a lot of that, my sources tell me, is because Friesen was uh, was an obstacle. So getting rid of Friesen, I think, makes this government more Heather Stephenson's government than ever before.
0: And, you know, the one thing I think that didn't get a lot of attention, but I think is important to note and uh, is in the midst of all these changes uh, in the, you know, this is the first time in Manitoba history that the leadership of the government is all women uh we've got premier heather stephenson uh, we've got the lieutenant governor anita neville uh, the clerk of the executive council is Catherine gerard uh you know I think that's notable. I think that that's also it's also, I think, uh, an important thing that Heather Stephenson, if you were to gain some kind of foothold and gain some kind of traction has been is that Heather Stephenson has been able to shepherd in in lots of different ways and uh, kind of a certain type of old male guard uh, into a different relationship within a historically very male old guard party of the progressive conservatives. And, and I think that that's notable. I think that that's important for Stephenson to play out, particularly when I think in many ways, the NDP in Manitoba is seen as more progressive than the progressive conservatives in so many other areas, uh, particularly in indigenous relations, particularly in, um, you know, social justice and the issue areas of, you know, in the areas of healthcare, which we talked about a little bit earlier. And so, you know, I think this is a all plays for an interesting election coming forward. And of course, uh, at the same time, we can't forget about the Liberals and the Liberals uh, this week have been, you know, hitting the pavement and trying to rally and and get people. they are certainly calling people, everybody that they can to be able to get notable candidates for this upcoming provincial election. And on that note, I want to say a big thanks to Dr. John Gerard. (laughs) <laughs> for recognizing, uh, giving me a, a Queen's Jubilee medal just recently. And uh, just a uh, very kind uh, time that I spent with the Liberal caucus uh, recently just visiting with them. And I'm certainly no Liberal, uh, but I can tell you that there's, uh, there's, you know, I think the Liberal Party is, is really gearing up for, as I heard and I spent time with them, they're looking at making some inroads in some mm-hmm. uh, major key areas within the province for maybe the first time since Sharon Carster's
1: yeah, I'm not sure when the appropriate time to do it is because um although the election has to be held by October by law, uh, it's the the premier's prerogative to uh, uh, drop the writ as we like to we like to say, the election election writ at any time before then and uh, there will always do be uh you know uh, um, uh, you know an opportunity to do that uh but we will in the age uh of uh, pervasive ubiquitous sports betting uh please stay tuned uh, for a future episode of uh, Nagan and the Lone Ranger where we handicap the 2023 Manitoba election and uh and I'll be accepting live bets uh in-game bets on election night <laughs> <laughs>
0: I, I uh I I don't know where we'll be on election night, but, uh, you know, we'll definitely do some sort of uh, call or, or prediction beforehand. And then, you know, hey, we'll just do a live 17-hour straight coverage. What do you say? Let's do it.
1: Yeah, well, you know that like the the kids these days, they love to watch athletes and gamers watching athletes and gamers. So uh, you know, everybody will remember. Like I don't think Alfon- anyone's going to
0: love watching no, you and I.
1: No, but Alfonso oh, Dading Riding by writing. He couldn't play in the last few games when Canada was calling for the World Cup. So he hosted a webcast where he was at home watching, uh, you know, the the, the national team uh, try to qualify for the World Cup, and and that was like people were watching him watching the game. So I think that people watching us. Watching the election results, I think it's a. I think that's a winner. The
0: money maker, that's screaming money. I, you know what? Let's call Paul Simon, our editor, and I'm sure he'll be all over that. We okay. can sell advertising. Um, you know, speaking of Paul, uh, huge thanks to the Free Press, as always, for supporting the podcast. Uh, we we haven't uh like we weren't steady the because of my family situation last week, but you know, big thanks to everybody for uh really you know emailing and asking what happened, where did we go and so uh big thanks to everybody over there and of course uh, all the great people that are the free press all of our colleagues all the great people at cjnu uh of course our producer adam uh, all the great work that he does and a huge thanks to to uh the mysterious storyteller that just showed up out of the blue uh that we it took us weeks to book that guy
1: yeah he was he was a real pain in the ass but uh i'm glad i'm glad we finally got that story told so
0: <laughs> and and also thanks uh to our feature interview.
1: Yeah, Angela Matheson was great. and uh, uh you know, fortunately for Winnipeggers, she'll continue to do work as uh as a planner and developer and uh, and a trusted uh, source of advice to people looking to make downtown a better place.
0: And so uh with that, we bring another episode to uh, Nigon and the Lone Ranger. Off into the sunset yet again. And uh, I'm going to
1: get my, my coconuts to do the clip clop, you know, Al Amani Python. I think that's, that's the wrong be...
0: reference, but hey, I, yeah. I'll take, all, take them all at this point. Okay. So, me, Glech, and thanks very much, everybody.
1: Thank you.